Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I met at our first radio jobs and have been friends ever since. And we had fun in our 20s as wing women for each other. And in our 30s, we got married. Then we had babies within weeks of each other. Eventually landing the hardest job we've ever had, parenthood. Our kids are 12 and 10, but we'll talk about everything from babyhood to menopause. We want to discuss topics that interest us and you and bring some knowledge to other average parents. We make it look easy. We make it look good. Yeah, we're average, not experts. So we'll talk about the topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I'm sure to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, after the first season, I'm pretty sure we already have. <laughs> so welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. Apparently, infertility affects more people than we know. Did you know that according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 7.3 million Americans have used infertility services? That's a lot. That's a lot. And I think infertility is often a misunderstood condition and one that maybe we need to talk about and discuss. Yeah, because by talking openly and honestly, um, maybe we can provide couples the opportunity to share with their family and friends. Um, you know, we want to provide support uh, as people struggle. Correct. And it's even more poignant this week because it is National Infertility Week. So it's just giving a, a platform for us to discuss. Um, you know, we have two kids. You have two kids. Um, but I have had friends who suffered from infertility, and I have seen firsthand it is a tremendous stressor and burden, both with your partner, but then in your family. Um, and it's an uncomfortable topic. I think, and maybe by talking about it more openly, maybe it wouldn't be so squishy and right. uncomfortable or stressful. Yes. Um, it's stressful both for the couple and for family, the surrounding loved ones and friends, because I'll be honest, I don't always know what to say or do or to comfort mm-hmm. our loved ones about it. Um, and it's not like I haven't cared about their situation. I just don't know how to to support them properly and how to um, the right things to say or do. Right. Because I think so often we say the wrong things, right? Yeah. Or we don't say anything at all, which comes off as like callous, like we don't care. But it's really because I I don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I don't want to sound like a dummy. So I did not have infertility challenges, but I've had plenty of friends that did. And as we got older, Um, You know, you and I both had kids around the same time. It was really difficult to manage some of these relationships because as someone who didn't struggle, I felt really bad for those that did. Um, And in a way, maybe a little bit guilty Mm -hmm. about it because I personally, when I was when I got married, I was really excited to have kids and start a family. And, you know, not everyone gets married and has kids, but that was our goal. And we wanted to to raise a family. So um, we didn't have that stress, stressful start to our marriage. Sure. Um, But that isn't true for everybody. And I've had friends that have to go to multiple um, baby showers Mm -hmm. and uh, birthdays and baptisms. And I one particular friend in particular it's very it's very traumatic for them to continually go and put on that smiley face when they're just dying to have a baby. Right, right. So you didn't have trouble. I didn't have uh, any issues conceiving the first time, but after Sophie was born, um, we had a miscarriage, and 
I remember then being not not just wanting a second child, but like being desperate to have a second child, right? Like I needed to replace, not that I can, you can replace anything, but, um, and I do remember, like, so you were talking about the, you know, uh, constant reminders, right? Um, everywhere I looked, I saw pregnant people and yeah. you were one of them because you were pregnant with Ethan and Sarah was one of them. She was pregnant well, with her firstborn. Uh, Sarah's your sister. Um, <laughs> my sister was one of them. Like, you know, every, like seriously, everywhere I looked. Right. And I kept feeling like there was something missing from me or that it was my fault. And also like just for the record, when you're trying and trying and trying, it is not romantic. No, no, that's no. not. Yeah, no. So that was like there. There was a real stress, um, just try, you know, like making it clinical in in a way. And so, luckily, we were able to you know get our second one. But um, did you know that I had a miscarriage? You did. I did before before Kate. I didn't. Yeah, I don't think I knew. I that. was in Denver. Ah, oh. I did. But um, so that, there's a loss there. I mean, when you're trying, but it ultimately worked out. You know, obviously, because we're here having a parenting podcast. That's <laughs> true. Either that, or we're totally lying yeah. all the time, fakers. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's interesting too, though, when you when you have a pregnancy after a miscarriage, I I found that I was fearful all the time because I was waiting for another miscarriage. Oh, okay. So did you? I don't remember. I don't remember that. Okay. I mean, I'm sure I did. Um, but it ultimately was a successful birth, obviously. Yeah. She just turned 13. She's a teenager. So, um, but I do know that it, I just, just from talking with my one friend in particular, um, I didn't think about it when you want to include your, your, your friends at these joyous things, like bring, asking them to come to the birthday party or the baptism or baby shower. But at the same time, like you're not thinking it's not like you shouldn't not invite them, but at the same time, I, I I heard it out of her mouth, and it made me think, oh, right. gosh, I didn't I didn't think about it like yeah. that. Oops. And so I thought, well, hey, let's bring in somebody to talk about it because it is an awareness week with National Infertility Week. We're bringing in Rebecca Flick. She is the vice president of communications and programs for Resolve, which is the National Infertility Association, to come on and talk to us about this important week. Thanks for joining us, Rebecca. Thank you both for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about your organization, Resolve, and how it got started? Sure. So Resolve was founded in 1974 um, by a woman who, a nurse who was experiencing her own infertility. Her name is Barbara Eck, and she founded the first support group around her kitchen table. And she saw the need for support. Um, And to give you some context, this was before even the very first IVF baby was born in the U.S. So she was gathering um, uh, women who were going through infertility uh, around her kitchen table and started support groups. And um, in 2005, the organization moved from uh, its founding state in Massachusetts to outside the Washington, D.C. area so we could focus more on um, policies that impact people with infertility. And we've uh, continued to carry the mission that we were founded on for support and awareness and advocacy. And today we have close to 300 support groups nationwide. Wow. uh, Face-to-face, peer-to-peer support is not dead, even though the Internet would like you to think it is. Mm -hmm. And um, we have a very strong advocacy program, both uh, with state and federal policies. 
And then we founded um, National Infertility Awareness Week in 1989. So what's the goal of the National Infertility uh, Awareness Week? Is it just, is it to destigmatize? Is it to uh, gain more funds? Is it, what are you hoping to achieve? As the organization uh, that founded this, we create the platform for the community to um, take the movement public. And we believe that when there is public awareness around a disease like infertility um, or other family building challenges, um, that you remove stigma. And when you remove stigma around something that's so complicated and people don't understand, like you were just talking about, uh, you're also going to remove barriers. And there are a lot of barriers that people who struggle to build a family face when it comes to all of the options um, that there are in today's amazing medical world. Um, but there are a lot of barriers. There's a lot of religious barriers. So we kind of use this week um, and, and every day of the year to help uh, educate the public and reduce the stigma around infertility. Sure. Medically speaking, what does infertility mean? Like Anne and I just talked about our own miscarriages. Um, mm-hmm. Is it is it multiple miscarriages? Is it um, just not even, you know, what is infertility technically speaking? Sure. So the medical diagnosis uh, is the uh, inability to achieve a pregnancy. Um, and if you're under 35, that's within 12 months of trying to conceive. And if you're over 35, their time is reduced to six months. Also within the definition is if you have more than two uh, concurrent miscarriages so that there's, there, were, there was no live birth in between the miscarriages, that's also a form of infertility. So miscarriage is definitely part of the discussion. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. And I, I think we're going to talk a little bit about um, some of our friends and their experiences. But, but I wanted to ask you, too, about... The extreme cases that we hear about, you know, um, even my my daughters now know about Octomom. I don't know how they found that. I'm, I, I blame the Google. Um, <laughs> but I read one in eight couples or 12 percent of married women have trouble getting pregnant or sustaining a pregnancy. Is infertility attributed to the female or, or is it men, too? So, you know, we, we, we put a lot of focus on the female side of the partner because they are going they're the ones trying to achieve the pregnancy. They're the body that's going to carry the pregnancy and then ultimately undergo the medical treatments associated with trying to get pregnant. But when you look at the diagnosis, 30% of infertility cases are female-related, meaning there's a, a function issue with either the ovaries, fallopian tubes, uterus, uh, egg quality, um, a number of things. 30% of the time, it's male-driven. Um, and then... The rest of the cases are unexplained or some impact of, of both male and female. So it's more and unexplained. It is just there's there's no everything. All the tests have come back. Everything appears to be healthy and in working order. And yet infertility is still there. But so it's pretty even. So it's not, you know, because I feel like women mm-hmm. feel that it's their fault more than men do. Yes. And, and they're always the first line of defense, so to speak, because they're the ones that are at their OBGYN. They're the ones that are trying to get pregnant, so they're going to talk about it first. They're going to um, be looked at first, uh, and then if if the all clear is there, you know, on the female side, then they start looking into the male. And you know, we we kind of encourage people who are struggling to conceive that you know a, a sperm test 
I, I will be honest, a sperm test is a lot easier to go through for the men than everything else that some women have to go to go through. So Amen. Um, definitely bring your partner into the conversation as early as, as you can. Okay. Do most couples that have infertility issues seek intervention or help? Is it, is it possible to track that? I'm jumping the gun here a little bit, but like if, if you're after a year and you are unsuccessful, do, do most women go forward and try to look in alternatives? I would say no. Um, I don't, we don't have any hard, hard data, but um, our years in this, in this space and our close partnership with the medical community, uh, we know very much that uh, it, it, this is an underutilized um, medical treatment. And a lot of that has to do with um, access to insurance coverage. People automatically rule it out because they don't have insurance coverage for it and there's just not something that they can afford. Also, there's there could be a lot of stigma with having to go um, through or see a specialist. And also, too, I think there's um, a a big myth that people don't understand that just because you go and see a reproductive endocrinologist, which is a fertility specialist, it doesn't always mean IVF. What are the options? Because I know I have a friend who uh, she took a medicine called Clomid, and um, I think that mm-hmm. helps release eggs. I have another friend who tried three times with an IUI, and I don't know what that means. And oh, then she moved is- on to IVF. So can you explain? Let's pretend. Um, so Tracy and I are older than 35. So let's <laughs> pretend it's been six months and I have not conceived. What are what are the options in a typical way um, that I could take? So it's definitely going to depend on what the condition is um, that is causing the infertility. So there's no there's no roadmap. A lot of people are like, oh, first you you know take the Clomid, and then if that doesn't work, you take you try the IUI. And IUI is intrauterine insemination, um, where they uh, stimulate the ovaries and inject the sperm right to the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no process like IVF, which is you retrieve the eggs from. The woman stimulated ovaries, the male provides a sperm sample, you mix this, I'm being very basic here, but you mix sure. this together in a Petri dish and you uh, hope that embryos are created out of there. And then with you and your doctor, you choose, um, you know, placing an embryo back into the female and then hopefully it implants and there's a pregnancy. So there's a variety of things that's going to depend, depend on your diagnosis. For example, I was not a candidate for IUI wasn't even an option for me. So we went straight to IVF. Why would that happen? Was it, and I don't want to be too personal, but like, uh, but oh, yeah, no my, I have several friends who did the IUI and they were like, I have to try this three times, but I know it's not going to work. Like they were pretty much um, sure. It was driven by their insurance coverage probably. Okay. Oh my gosh. So, so often insurance plans have those kind of uh, restrictions where they're going to try something that's less Sure. Uh, less effective and less expensive. Yeah. And you have to try and fail. So could you imagine that? Like you are being told you have to, and my insurance plan did this. And I, when we, we fought it, I couldn't produce eggs. I was t- 30. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the ovaries probably of, you know, 45, 47 year old. Um, and I couldn't even produce the eggs without major stimulation in order to go through any you know, the IUI. My insurance plan also said they wouldn't cover IVF until I'd had three miscarriages. Oh so could you imagine if I could get pregnant, I would have to experience a miscarriage three times 
It's, and that's brutal. My insurance coverage. Yes, it's 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 yes, it's painful. And these are the barriers that are out there for millions and millions of people. Um, and so, what our advice would be to anybody listening is that you you need to look at this as a course of treatment. There is something going on. You have to find out what it is, and then you sit down with a specialist. Um, you know, I think there's also a comfort level that people have with their OBGYNs uh, if they've been there a long time. And, you know, that's what the OBGYN focuses on, especially if they've maybe delivered a baby through their OBGYN before. And this is a secondary infertility issue. There's a trust level there. But if you had a disease like diabetes or if you found out you had cancer, you would go to a specialist. Mm-hmm. And reproductive endocrinologists are there to help treat your infertility. Um, and they can find out what's going on, help you understand it, and then you decide on your course of treatment. Sure. Do states have insurance or coverage mandates to help cover the costs? Like, is some states, like, better than others to live in to be supported like that? I remember one friend going to Colorado now. I don't know why she went to Colorado. I mean, I know why she was going to a, a fertility specialist there, and I don't know if it was an insurance thing or if that's who she thought was the best, but that's off top. <laughs> but is there, is there like insurance, when you talk about insurance, is there a state level that it, it depends on where you live, what your coverage is like? Yes. Yes. Very much so. There are only, sorry, I'm scrolling through our website right now because <laughs> we have all of this information by state on there. Um there are t- different types of insurance mandates. Some mandate to cover, some mandate to offer. Um, you have the top level of insurance mandates are in states like Illinois and Massachusetts. Um, New York just passed um, through the governor's budget a phenomenal update to their insurance law that will take place in 2020. And so uh, you really have to understand what your state laws are. Um, to see if you're covered in any way, but so often self-insured plans are opted out of these laws and self-insured are, uh, are usually large employers. So there are a couple ways that you can go about getting insurance coverage for infertility. One is if understand your state mandate and where you fall into that. Another way is to um, go directly to your employer and ask for it. And we have an entire toolkit on resolve.org that walks you through the steps, gives you all the information you need, gives you a letter template, gives you all the stats, talks about how important this coverage is. And we did a study um, about a year ago that showed that people who had insurance coverage through their employer felt valued and felt more connected to that employer than those that don't. Absolutely. So for any employers listening out there, uh, it's, it's not a huge expense. It makes a world of difference in someone's life who's going through this because they have that, they have that coverage. They have that sense of ease that there are going to be so many barriers in front of them to achieving their resolution and, and getting to the parenthood that they want, that taking the cost barrier away from them, it, 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 it's life-changing. Yeah, I mean it's 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 stressful enough when it it doesn't work every month that you try, but then when you consider like the financial like so not only is there like your your partner your relationship with your partner is strained, but also like a financial strain because you both want it, but gosh you can't it's it's money's tight and you can't do it you just can't afford it you want it so bad but you it's cost prohibitive. 
Yes, and yes, and Resolve never says that um, IVF is expensive because it's uninsured. It's uncovered. It's cost prohibitive, just like what you just said, because if you were to break down the cost of delivering your pregnancy, you would say, if it wasn't covered by insurance, you would say, oh, that was expensive, right? So we know a lot about um, things that are, we don't know the cost of things that are covered. And uh, the average cost of an IVF cycle in the U.S. is $12,500. If you're looking at this as a course of treatment and say you need two or three to achieve your pregnancy, you know, it's dollars $37,000. So I don't know any, I don't know many people that when they start to get pregnant say, oh, let's get that saving started. We might need $37,000 to have a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I do remember when we got the bill for my firstborn, and what we paid versus what, and I was hospitalized for, uh, it was a long story, uh, but we paid minimally compared to what the hospital charged. I mean, it was a, more than $100,000. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, what if we hadn't been insured? Yeah. Right. And, and you know, people that go through infertility treatments um, who don't have insurance coverage can sometimes make risky choices because they, they know that they might only have one or two shots at this. So they might be um, taking risks like, the, you know, multiple embryos right. and, you know, and putting themselves at a high-risk pregnancy or, you know, high-risk twins. I'm not, I'm not at all judging anybody who makes those decisions, but I think when you're looking, talking about it from a perspective of, you know, what can insurance coverage do for someone with infertility, it, can, it, it helps them and their doctor be able to make choices based on what they have available in their coverage, not what they have available in their bank account. So right, right. I think um, that's helpful. I have a friend who's going through this right now and, and they will only implant one egg or one embryo at a time because of that. They don't, you know, but mm-hmm. she's, but she's covered. So, um, yep. they, and they do genetic testing and I mean, there are so many layers to it, but um, I can imagine, you know, putting three in or four in, because you're hoping one will survive, and then what what are the odds that you get four, and how does that impact you? Right, and the cost of high-order multiples is far more costly on um, hospitals and insurance companies than covering IVF. Sure. So as an organization, how do you help couples manage the stress? Like, you know, are there, certainly there's the medical side of, of treatments, um, but do you have advice for people who are, you know, going through this and looking at each other, you know, with stress and fear and uh, a little bit of despair? Yes, so that's really why we continue the support groups uh, in communities all over the country um, is because, and a lot of them are um, male and female support groups. So couples are going together and they can walk into a room and they can feel like everyone in this room will get me. There's no judgment and it takes a bit of uh stress off the whole process. Um, they, they also, when you connect with people who um, either have been through this or are going through it, you might look at other options that you never thought before. Um, you know, like egg donation or um, using a sperm donor or, you know, receiving donated embryos, adoption. They're, everyone has their own kind of preconception on how they want to build their family. Nobody ever says, you know, as they're growing up, I want to go through IVF to build my family. Um, Some people do say, I do want to adopt, and that is an amazing process. But when you're faced with infertility and you have all of these options, you might not really truly understand all the options until you meet someone who has been, you know, has made a decision and and built their family in a different way. And and even leaving child free. Um, We have support groups that have helped people understand 
that, you know, none of these options is going to be what's right for them. And they've found strength and empowerment and encouragement from others who live child free. And that can be very freeing to someone who's suffered so much disappointment that they take that step and they say, I'm going to choose to live child free. Um, and connect with people or, who also have, have made that decision, you mm-hmm. know, that because then you, you have each other to go through it. Oh, when this happened, what, how did you handle it or whatever? Right. And so the face-to-face connections all across the community are so valuable. Um, we host uh, awareness walks. Um, we have two types of awareness walks. We have uh, signature walks of hope, and they happen in eight cities around the country. And then we have people in their local communities who want to step up and help resolve and support Resolve's mission, and they host local community DIY walks, we call them. Mm-hmm. We have 10 happening this weekend. Wow. Um, and they this is really a, a way for people to create what we say, create community around a cause. And um, they connect with people. And then through our advocacy work, we really are empowering people to take charge of their infertility. And so we host a Hill Day on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., where people come up and they talk to members of Congress about their personal stories. Uh, we have several bills in Congress right now uh, that will help federal employees gain access to IVF, um, our veterans gain access to IVF. There's a huge problem in the VA system and and our active military that when someone is injured and the injury causes their infertility and they can no longer serve our country as active duty, they're immediately transferred into the VA system. And the VA system up until last year didn't have any coverage for IVF. And that's the only way that many of our servicemen and women can achieve parenthood. So there's a lot of issues, a lot of um, that affects so many different types of people in this country. And we, as an organization, that's the patient voice, bring everybody together in a multitude of ways, create community around this cause and create change. So you talk about support groups um, for the couples going through it. Um, does some of this advocacy um, support the loved ones and friends and family of the people going through it? Because I was reading on, your, on the Resolve website about etiquette. Of things, you know, how to how to help support your friend that's going through it. And I have to be honest, mm-hmm. I was reading some of the things not to say, and I was like, oh crap. Yeah, because you said them. <laughs> yeah, because I said them. Like, relax. It's gonna work. You know, relax. I said relax. That yeah. was like the number one thing that said not to say, and I said it. <laughs> I know. I, I said it. Um, don't ask why they're trying IVF. Don't no. Don't ask. Don't ask why they aren't trying. Why they IVF. aren't trying? Yeah, like try to be the doctor for them. And oh say, God. Um, don't complain about your pregnancy. That that contributes to what I was talking about earlier about being uncomfortable. Like because I feel guilty that I was I was pregnant, and maybe my friend who I know was struggling with it. <laughs> It, it's so uncomfortable, I, and I mean well um, to everyone that's going, you know, through it. You just don't know what to say. Uh, don't push adoption. Absolutely. So, are, right. does, the, does the support groups involve like um, on the website uh, how to help the people that are friends with the people going through it? I think that the support groups do, um, you know, every support group can be a little unique uh, based on the leader. And I know that some support groups invite others to, you know, you know, bring your mom or bring your sister. Or, uh, we like to say bring your fertile friend um, so <laughs> they can learn a little bit of something. But really the support groups are for the people going through it. And we hope that they're getting tools to have the conversation open and honestly. And I, and I, and I know that I think people with infertility, they don't want to take anybody's joy away. So, um, you know, you're talking 
before about baby showers and birthday parties, and they don't want to take that joy away, but they're going to protect themselves and maybe start saying no and not going to those things. Because if they're open and honest and can share how they're feeling that they don't want to be there, that'll take some joy away from you if you're the one celebrating. And I don't think anybody with infertility wants to do that. Um, you know, it, you listen to your friends when they say something like, you know, if you're in a big friend group and everyone's going to, you know, trying to get pregnant at the same time and you know you're the one struggling. I said to my friends, when it happens for you, can you just tell me first and then do your big announcement however you want? I just, I needed that protection. And I had friends that honored that and I had friends that didn't. And, but at least I knew I was protecting myself. Sure. Um, and, you know, the baby shower, I never, I didn't like baby showers. I didn't want them even when I achieved pregnancy, you know, because I knew how they made me feel. And so I would say to friends and family who have someone going through this, you know, just, just listen to them, ask questions. Like you said, don't offer solutions. You're not the doctor. You're not in their shoes. Um, but empathy goes a long way. I was going to ask about that because I, I do have a friend going through this. And every time I see her, I want to say, how are you doing? But I don't want to pry. It, it's not wrong to say, you know, say, how are you doing? Can I help? Is it? No, I mean, I think it's like anybody who's struggling with something. Um, you know, if you have a friend going through cancer treatments, you know, always give them, this is how I how I live my life. This is not maybe resolve advice, but I always say, um, may I do this for you? Mm-hmm. Can I, you know, bring you a meal on Friday? Um, or can I take you to yoga? Mm-hmm. So, because if you're asking them what you can do for them, they're going to be paralyzed and, and, and not really feel comfortable saying what they really need. They just meet each you to, to make, to take the first step and say, um, how about we go do this together and make it something that doesn't involve your kids. If you have children or, um, maybe not centered around, you know, where children are the focus, so like a yoga class or, sure. you know, go to That's a, interesting. A focused restaurant or something. Sure. Well, Mother's Day is coming up. That was another thing that, um, was on the under etiquette was talking about remember that Mother's Day is painful for them with Mother's Day you know around the corner as somebody that's gone through it what what's a what's a good thing to do or how how could we treat or um, respect our friends that are going through this right now on that day Um, I think you know on that day realize that they probably will if you know they're really in the depths of things just not leave the house Mm -hmm. and that's okay Um, you know it's kind of the same same thing when if you have a close friend who maybe lost her mother recently, you know, kind of that if they're not in the mood to celebrate, it's okay. But maybe a pick a day during National Fertility Awareness Week or mm-hmm. pick a day after um, Mother's Day and, you know, take her to get a pedicure or, you know, go for a long walk and don't talk about any of it unless they bring it up. Rebecca, you mentioned that you achieved pregnancy. Do you do you have kids? Can we celebrate something? Oh, sure. I have um, an 11-year-old who's about to finish elementary school and head off to middle school, which is scary. We know. Um, and I, <laughs> and he got his hair dyed green this weekend. Um, and I have a four-year-old daughter who was um, the shock of our life. Oh! And, <laughs> and um, we had in between, um, in between those two, we had years of trying to pursue adoption. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, don't suggest adoption. And I can tell you, people say, oh, you should just adopt. And there's nothing j- 
jest about it. And the process is very hard. And um, I'm I'm amazed at people that that stay the course and finish the the adoption journey. Just my husband and I went into it and some things happened and we decided to to stop. Um, And then we were... um, blessed with our daughter unexpectedly and you know infertility is a funny way of of sneaking up on you because when I realized I was pregnant I was angry and I thought oh have I been a fraud all these years and my um, president and CEO of Resolve she and I have worked together for 14 years now and she said I have watched you struggle for almost a decade you know there there was nothing you know you you for 10 years it took you to get pregnant one time right so in all of those years of trying, I managed one pregnancy on my own and one pregnancy with IVF. And um, yeah, and I was I was angry, and it took me a little while to get over that. Um, but she's she's a joy. She is our our you know keeps you on your toes. You one volume, yeah, one volume and one speed. So <laughs> well, congratulations though, because you know you. Um, we as parenting podcasters, um, I think we would agree that there. There's nothing that we love more than than being moms. So um, I'm happy to hear of your success. Thank you. Thank you so much for helping talk about it this week with it being National Infertility Week. And um, your website uh, at Resolve, it has a lot of great resources for um, folks and we'll attach it to the podcast as well so that they can go and look up resources and um, that etiquette page or how to support your loved ones. That was the one that I particularly enjoyed reading because um, as somebody that has been successful. I do have friends that have not been so successful. And um, I think it's just good reading anyway to to be a better person and a better friend or um, sister or brother. Yep. So Rebecca Flick, the Vice President of Communications and Programs for Resolve. um, Thank you so much for joining us today and kind of talking through what this week is all about and um, how we can be supportive of our friends and family. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Cheers. So apparently infertility affects many more people than you might think. And we need to offer support and comfort to our friends who are struggling to get pregnant. This is a good week to to think about it and reflect on it and check out the website. It really has some good. I mean, when I read that etiquette page, I was like, oh, my God, I'm not kidding how many things I know I've said. You have have no no idea how what you say might land. Yeah. You don't yeah. you don't know when you're not in those shoes. So um, it definitely gives you pause to read it and go, oh, okay, yeah, better. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it differently next time, right? So Monday um, morning quarterback, my conversations from like five years ago, um, as as we do <laughs> quite a bit. Yes. Um, so we'd love to hear from you about this. Does infertility affect you, or um, what would you wish people would know about it? What drives you crazy when you hear it from a friend or what do you wish they knew about your struggles? Uh, If so, we'd love to hear from you if you'd share with us. You can check out our Facebook page or give us a call at 331-704-0046. Or email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Plus podcast. I'm Ann Johnsokes. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. Everybody's here.